passwords, botnets, and malware on the Mac. All that and more on the Naked Security Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. I am Doug Ameth. He is Paul Ducklin. Paul, how you doing? Malware on Macs? <gasps> Surely some it, mistake, Doug. Oh, what? This must be a typo. <laughs> All right, let's get right to it. Uh, of course, our first segment of the show is always the uh, This Week in Tech History segment. This week, exciting, basic. If you've ever used one of the many flavors of the popular programming language, you may know that it stands for Beginner's All-Purpose Symbolic Instruction Code. The first version was released at Dartmouth College on May 1st, 1964, with the goal of being easy enough for non-math and non-science majors to use, Paul. And... Uh, I take it you've dabbled with BASIC in your life? I might have done just that, Doug. But even more importantly than Dartmouth BASIC, of course, was that was the time that the DTSS, the Dartmouth Time Sharing System, went online so that people could use Dartmouth BASIC and their Algol compiler, and lots of different people on teletypes could share the system at the same time entering their own basic programs and running them in real time as they sat there. Wow, 59 years ago, Doug. Lots changed. A lot has stayed the same. Could be said to be where it all began. The cloud. (laughs) The New (laughs) England cloud. I mean, it really was. That network became quite significant. It went all the way up into Maine, all the way through New Hampshire, and right down into New York, I believe, and Long Island schools and colleges and universities all connected together so that they could enjoy coding themselves. So there is a sense of plus a change, plus la même chose in there, Doug. Excellent. All right. Well, uh, we are going to talk about Google, and uh, this sounds a little bit more nefarious than it actually is. Google can now legally force ISPs to filter traffic but it, it's not quite as bad as it sounds. It's uh, This is botnet traffic, and it's because uh, there's a botnet using a bunch of Google stuff to trick people. Yes, I think you do have to say hats off to Google for doing this. Obviously, a huge exercise. They had to put together a, a complex, well-reasoned legal argument why they should be given the right to go to ISPs and say, look, you have to stop traffic coming from this IP number or from that domain. So it's not just a takedown of the domain. It's actually knocking their traffic out. And Google's argument was, if it takes trademark law to get them for this, well, we want to do it because our evidence shows that more than 670,000 people in the US have been infected by this zombie malware, CryptBot, that essentially allows these guys to run a malware or data theft as a service service where they can take screenshots, riffle through your passwords, grab all your stuff. 670,000 victims in the US, and not just that they're victims themselves, that their data can be stolen, their computers can be sold on to help other crooks use them in committing further crimes. Sounds rather a lot, Doug. So it's not a snoopers charter. They've not got the right to say, oh, Google can now force ISPs to look at the traffic and analyse what's going on, to saying, we think that we can isolate that network as an obvious, overt purveyor of badness. The operators seem to be located outside the U.S. They're obviously not going to show up in the U.S. to defend themselves. So we're asking the court to make a judgment based on our evidence. And the court said, yeah, as far as we can see, we think that if this did go to trial, if the defendants did show up, we think Google have a very, very strong chance of prevailing. 
So we are going to issue an order that says, let's try and interfere with this operation. And I think the key word there is try. Is, does, will something like this actually work? Or how, how much heavy lifting does it take to uh, reroute 670,000 zombie computers onto uh, to somewhere else that can't be blocked? I think that's usually what happens, isn't it? We yeah. see with cybercrime that you cut off one head and another grows back. But that's not something they can do instantaneously. You know, they have to go and find another provider who's prepared to take the risk, knowing that they've now got the U.S. Department of Justice looking at them from a distance, knowing that maybe the U.S. has now aroused some interest, perhaps, in the Justice Department in their own country. So I think the idea is to say to the crooks, you can disappear from one site and come up in some other so-called bulletproof hosting company, but we are watching you and we are going to make it difficult. And if I read correctly, Doug, the court order also allows for this limited period Google to almost unilaterally add new locations themselves to the block list. So they're now in this trusted position that if they see the crooks moving and their evidence is strong enough, they can just say, yeah, add this one, add this one, add that one. So whilst it might not stop the dissemination of the malware, it might at least give the crooks some hassle. It might help their business to stagnate a little bit. Like I said, it might draw some interest from law enforcement in their own country to go and have a look around. And it might very well protect a few people who would otherwise fall for the ruse. And uh, there are some things that uh, those of us at home can do, starting with stay away from sites offering unofficial downloads of popular software. Indeed, Doug. Now, I'm not saying that all unofficial downloads will contain malware, but it's usually possible, at least if it's a mainstream product, so it's a free and open source one, to find the one true site and go and get the thing straight from there. Because we have seen cases in the past where even so-called legitimate downloader sites that are marketing-driven can't resist offering downloads of free software that they wrap in an installer that adds extra stuff like adware or pop-ups that you don't want and so on. A handy browser toolbar, of course. <laughs> I'd forgotten about the browser toolbars, Doug. <laughs> Find the right place and don't just go to a search engine and type in the name of a product and then take the top link. You may well end up on an imposter site. That's not enough for due diligence. And along those lines, taking things a step further, never be tempted to go for a pirated or cracked program. That's the dark side of the previous tip. It's easy to make a case for yourself, isn't it? Oh, a little old me, just this once. I need to use super expensive this, that, and the other. I just need to do it this one time, and then I'll be good afterwards, honest. And you think, what harm will it do? I wasn't going to pay them anyway. Don't do it, because A, it is illegal. B, you inevitably end up consorting with exactly the kind of people behind this CryptBot scam. They're hoping you're desperate, and therefore you'll be much more inclined to trust them where normally you go, oh, look like a bunch of charlatans. And of course, lastly, there's almost always going to be a free or an open source alternative that you could use. It might not be as good. It might be harder to use. You might need to invest a little bit of time learning to use it. But if you really don't like paying for the big product because you think they're rich enough already, don't steal their stuff to prove a point. Go and put your energy and your impetus and your visible support legally behind someone who does want to provide you the product for free. That's my feeling, Doug. Yeah. Stick it to the man legally. And then finally, last but not least, 
consider running real-time malware blocking tools. Uh, these are things that they scan downloads and they can tell you, hey, this looks bad. Uh, but also, if you try to run something at runtime, they'll say, no, no, no. Yes. So that rather than just saying, oh, well, I can scan files I've already got. Are they good, bad, or indifferent? That you have a lower chance of putting yourself in harm's way in the first place. Let us talk about Apple. This is a surprise. They surprised us all with the new Rapid Security Response Initiative. What happened here, Paul? Well, Doug, I got this Rapid Security Response. The download was a few tens of meg, as far as I remember. The verification, a couple of seconds. And then my phone went black, rebooted. And next thing I know, right back where I started, and I have the update iOS 16.4.1, round brackets A, close round brackets. There's a weird new version number to go with it as well. The only downside I can see, Doug, is that you have no idea what it's for. None at all. Not even a little bit like, oh, sorry, we found a zero day in WebKit. We thought we'd better fix it, which would be nice to know. Just nothing. But small, fast. My phone was out of service for seconds rather than tens of minutes. Same experience on my Mac. Instead of for 35 minutes of grinding away, please wait, please wait, please wait, rebooting three or four times. Is it going to come back? Basically, the screen went black. Seconds later, I'm typing my password and I'm running again. So there you are, Doug. Rapid security response, but no one knows why. <laughs> that that should it's perhaps unsurprising, <laughs> but it's still cool nonetheless that they've got uh, this kind of programming in place. So let's stay on the Apple train and talk about you know for the for the low low price of a thousand dollars a month, you too can get in to the Mac malware game, Paul. Yes, this is certainly a good reminder that if you are still convinced that Macs don't get malware, think again. These are researchers at a company called Cybel, and they have essentially a sort of dark web monitoring team. They, if you like, deliberately <laughs> try and lie down with dogs to see what fleas they attract so that they can find things that are going on before the malware gets out while it's being offered for sale, for example. And that's exactly what they found here. And just to make it clear that this isn't malware that happens to include a Mac variant, it is absolutely targeted at helping other cyber criminals who want to target Mac fanboys and girls directly, it is called AMOS, Doug, Atomic MacOS Stealer. It does not support Windows. It does not support Linux. It does not run in your browser. And the crooks are even offering, via a sort of secret channel on Telegram, this full service that includes what they call beautifully prepared DMG. So they recognize, I suppose, that Mac users expect software to look right and to look good and to install in a, in a certain Mac-like way. And they've tried to follow all those guidelines and produce a program that is as believable as it can be, particularly since it needs to ask for your admin password so that it can do its dirtiest stuff, stealing all your keychain passwords. But it tries to do that in a way that's believable. But in addition to that, not only do you, as the cyber crook who wants to go after Mac users, get access to their online portal, so you don't need to worry about collating the data yourself, Doug, they even have an app for that. So if you've mounted an attack and you couldn't be bothered to wake up in the morning, actually log in to your portal and check whether you've been successful, they will send you real-time messages via Telegram to tell you where your attack succeeded and even to give you access to stolen data right there in the app on your phone. No need to log in, Doug. Well, that's helpful. As you say, it's $1,000 a month. Is that a lot or a little for what you get? I don't know. But at least we know about it now, Doug. And as I said, for anyone who's got a Mac, 
it is a reminder that there is no magic security that immunizes you from malware on a Mac. You are much less likely to experience it. But having less malware on Macs than you get on Windows is not the same as having zero malware and being at no risk from cyber criminals. Well said. Let's talk about passwords. World Password Day is coming up, and I will cut to the chase uh, because you have heard us on this very program say time and time again, use a password manager if you can, use 2FA when you can. Those uh, we're calling timeless tips, but then two other tips to think about. Number one, get rid of accounts you aren't using. I had to do this when LastPass was breached. It's not a fun process, but it felt very cathartic, and now I'm down to only, I believe, the accounts I'm still actively using. Yes, it was interesting to hear you talking about that. That definitely minimizes what's called, in the jargon, your attack surface area. Fewer passwords, fewer to lose. And then another one to think about, revisit your account recovery settings. I thought it's worth reminding people about that because it's easy to forget that you may have an account that you are still using that you do know how to log into, but that you've sort of forgotten where that recovery email goes or if there's an SMS code, what phone number you put in and you haven't needed to use it for seven and a half years. You've forgotten all about it and you may have put in, say, a phone number that you're not using anymore which means that A, if you need to recover the account in the future, you're not going to be able to. And B, for all you know, that phone number could have been issued to someone else in the interim. Exactly the same with an email account. If you've got a recovery email going to an email account that you've lost track of, what if someone else has already got into that account? Now, they might not realize which services you've tied it to, but they might just be sitting there watching it. And the day when you do press on your account, recover my password, They'll get the message and they'll go, hello, that looks interesting. And then they can go in and basically take over your account. So those recovery details really do matter. And if those have got out of date, they are almost more important than the password you have on your account right now, because they are equal keys to your castle. All right. Very good. So this year, a very happy World Password Day to everyone and uh, take some time to get your ducks in a row. Uh, As the sun begins to set on our show, it's time to hear from one of our readers. Interesting comment on last week's podcast. And as a reminder, the podcast is available both uh, in audio mode and uh, in written form. Paul sweats over a transcript every week and uh, does a great job. It's a very readable podcast. So we had a reader, Forrest, write about the last podcast. We were talking about this, uh, this paper cut hack and that a researcher had released a proof of concept script that people could use very easily to... Become hackers instantly. Exactly. Let's put not too fine a point yeah. on it. <laughs> so Forrest writes, for, for the whole disgruntlement over the paper cut POC script, I think it's important to also understand that POCs allow both good and bad actors to demonstrate risk. While it can be damaging to an organization, demonstrating risk or witnessing someone get owned over it is what drives remediation and patching. I can't count the number of times I've seen vulnerability management teams light fires under their IT resources only after I've weaponized the 10-year-old CVE they have refused to patch. Good point. Paul, what are your thoughts on that? I get the point. I understand what full disclosure is all about. I think there is quite a big difference between publishing a proof of concept that 
absolutely anybody who can knows how to download a text file and save it on their desktop can use to become instant abuser of the vulnerability while we know that this is a vulnerability currently being exploited by people like ransomware criminals and crypto jackers there's a difference between blurting that out while the thing is still a clear and present danger and trying to shake up your management to fix something that is 10 years old i think in a balanced world maybe this researcher could simply have explained how they did it they could have shown you the java methods that they used and reminded you of the ways that this has been exploited before they could have made a little video showing that their attack worked if they wanted to go on the record as being one of the first people to come up with a poc because i recognize that that's important you're proving your worth to prospective future employers who might employ you for threat hunting but in this case i'm not against the poc being released i just shared your opinion in the podcast it was more a grunting. Yeah, it was. I think my exact quote was. Uh. Yes, I translated as a a a a a a a a r g h. I would have. Uh, I, I probably would have gone it. with an, like n n n n n n g h, like a. Uh, but yeah, that, that's close. <laughs> yeah, transcribing is as much art as science. <laughs> so, I see what our commenter is saying there, and I get the point that knowledge is power. And I did find looking at that POC useful, but I didn't need it as a working Python script. And it doesn't mean that everybody can do it anytime they feel like it. All right. Uh, thank you very much, Forrest, for sending that in. If you have an interesting story, comment, or question you'd like to submit, we'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at sophos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles, or you can hit us up on social at Naked Security. That's our show for today. Thanks very much for listening. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Ameth, reminding you until next time to... Stay, Stay secure. secure.